0: This is The Guardian. Hey, Gabrielle Jackson here. In the past couple of months, production on Hollywood films and hit TV shows has ground to a halt. SAG AFTRA, the group representing screen actors, has recently joined the Writers Guild of America on the picket lines and on indefinite strike the first time both writers and actors have joined forces in a labour dispute since the 1960s. At the centre of the dispute is the fight for a fair share of streaming income, as well as the threat of AI use in the entertainment industry. In this episode of our global news podcast, Today in Focus, host Michael Safi speaks with Lois Beckett, a senior reporter with Guardian US, and with the star of Succession, Brian Cox about what's motivating these strikes and whether the entire Hollywood system is stacked against workers. And just a quick warning, this episode contains some explicit language. Here's Michael Safi.
1: Long before Brian Cox was Succession's ruthless corporate CEO, Logan Roy.
2: I'm going to build something better. Something faster, lighter, meaner, wilder. And I'm going to do it from in here, where do you are?
1: He was a teenage actor in Dundee, trying to scratch out a career.
2: I would never describe it as easy. An actor's life isn't easy in terms of making a living. But there was certainly not what we have now. You know, when I started, there was three television channels. <laughs> so that's all you had to deal with. You didn't get a vast amount, but you could earn a living doing a TV show. It was much more possible to work in that way.
1: And for actors and writers in the UK, and especially the US, this work offered the prospect of a pretty good middle-class life, even if you weren't a superstar. And that was in part because in 1960, Hollywood actors and writers banded together and went on strike. The world had recently changed. The new technology of television had started appearing in living rooms across the country. For the entertainment industry, it was a whole new business model and the actors and writers wanted a bigger piece of it.
3: Where is the additional money going to come from? Is this going to mean a rise in the price of theatre tickets? We hope it's going to come from an increased attendance at Motion pictures.
1: By the way, one of the union leaders back then was an actor by the name of Ronald Reagan. In
3: any negotiations, you give a little and you, and you get a
1: little. And uh... Later, he'd go in a very different direction. In 1960, the actors and writers won. And now, 63 years later, history is repeating itself. The Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA, which represents actors, have voted to go on indefinite strike. No more movies, no more TV. Actors like Brian Cox are holding signs, attending rallies or picketing outside studios. They're saying the world has changed again and our business model needs to change with it.
2: The thing is that uh, the paradigm is so shifted so fast and so quickly, and we're now into something which is quite different from what it was 50 years ago. The deals are not good enough for the actor or for the performer. They're simply not good enough. That's the whole point of the strike.
1: Working in movies and TV is a pretty unique job. The fame, the costumes, bringing people's imaginations to life. But to understand why these strikes are happening, actors and writers say, don't look at what makes our work so different to yours. Look at what makes it the same.
2: That's what's at the root of all the problems. Vested interest. Oh, it's not in my interest to serve you. It's not in my interest to make the conditions right for you. My interest is to serve me, and you will serve me at the cost that I say. And that ain't on for anybody. Nurse, doctor, actor,
1: director, writer. No, it's not on. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, is Hollywood broken? And with AI on the horizon and approaching fast, can it ever be put back together again? Lois Beckett, you're a senior reporter with Guardian US based in Los Angeles. This is the first time that both the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild have been on strike together since 1960. This is a really big deal, right?
4: Everybody that I've been talking to on the picket lines, writers, actors, everyone weighing in on this in LA says this is an absolutely historic moment. And both the writers and actors say they feel like this is an existential battle, that they're not just fighting over this contract, that they're fighting for the future of their
1: profession. So what does it mean for Hollywood when two of the pillars of the industry decide to stop working? Like, what's it done to the industry? So
4: the writer's strike really slowed things down. But that's about 11,000 people on strike across the city. And still some filming was happening. But SAG-AFTRA, the actors' union, they have 160,000 members. Hmm. And so when they decided to go on strike, that basically shut almost everything down. And that doesn't mean just that filming on TV and movies has stopped. Promotion for all of those major studios has also stopped. So you've probably heard, right, that the Oppenheimer actors walked out of their London premiere once the strike was called.
2: We have to acknowledge you've seen them here earlier on the red carpet. Unfortunately, they're off to write their picket signs for what we believe to be an imminent strike by SAG.
4: Comic Con actors haven't showed up for that. There really is just a total pause, and it's not clear how long it's going to go on. Function.
3: From anticipated sequels, including Deadpool 3 and Beetlejuice 2, to TV hits Stranger Things
4: and Cobra Kai, fans will likely have to wait longer than expected for their big and small screen faves.
1: And the picket lines have been pretty star-studded affairs, unsurprisingly. We've seen actors the likes of Brian Cranston.
4: What we have put forth in the negotiations is not unreasonable. It is not Unfair.
1: Susan Sarandon.
4: They can just basically
2: take our faces, our voices and have us do whatever they want with very little or no compensation.
1: And Equity, the British affiliate of SAG-AFTRA, have held rallies in London that featured actors like Brian Cox.
2: We're disregarded and they forget that that's the centre of the activity. Without them, they have nothing. And ironically, the Directors Guild of America did not come out in support of the Writers Guild, and that was a big mistake.
1: And you've been down at those rallies too. What's the mood like down there? There's a heat
4: wave almost everywhere in the world, and so being on the picket line in the burning sun is tough. One of the things that's really surreal is that to keep people's energy up, there are often theme days on the picket line. So when I was out at Netflix last week, it was Bridgerton Day. And so there were literally actors dressed in long Jane Austen dresses and bonnets and parasols. We have scones. We have shaved ice. We have iced coffees. So it's actually a very fabulous party. And everyone is chanting, I say union, you say strong, union, strong, union, strong. But they're also like waving their fans and walking in their little long dresses. So it's a little bit crazy.
1: That's a lot to be wearing in such hot weather, too. That is not strike clothing.
4: It is not. Another guy I interviewed was sort of wearing a raggedy 18th century shirt, which seemed like it might be a little bit breezier.
1: No more rags for the riches.
4: But no, I would not want to be wearing a bonnet in this weather.
1: And so when the writers were asked whether they should go on strike, something like 97% of the Writers Guild voted to do so, which is pretty emphatic. What are they facing that made the choice so clear to them?
4: For writers and actors, they're facing the same problem, which is that they do not feel like they are being brought into the new streaming era in any way that makes it possible for them to make a living. They think this new higher-tech streaming industry is trying to make writers and actors into gig workers, to take mm-hmm. something that used to be a profession, even at the less famous lower levels that you could make a living, you could raise your kids on an actor's salary. And now many actors have told me they feel like it's being compensated in a way where this is not a profession, this is just a hobby. They'll throw you some dollars, but it's not something that you can actually do and make a living.
1: Mm. I mean, the background to this strike is actually about us and the way we consume movies and TV. Tell me about how that's changed over the past decade. So
4: people used to literally watch movies in the movie theater, or they would watch things on TV and you would pay for cable. And what's happened with the streaming revolution is now people are seeing fewer movies And they're not watching on TV. We're all watching on streaming services online, which is for us a lot cheaper. You know, you can get a lot for 10 bucks a month on Netflix compared Mm -hmm. to how much you would pay for a movie ticket. But that... Shift has been very challenging for every part of the industry. And actors, especially, say that what has happened is that their contracts haven't caught up to the new models. So, if you're thinking back to that historic strike in 1960, one of the battles that happened there with the actors was whether actors should get compensated when movies are shown on television. And what's happening today is a similar question. How are actors going to be compensated when the stories that they have made are shown on streaming platforms? So actors will say, when a show I did was shown on television in reruns, they could get residual checks for hundreds of dollars. It's been reported that the cast of Friends made tens of millions of dollars as their show was replayed over and over again on television. And now actors say something that they did 10 years ago or 15 years ago that got played on TV, they'll still get a check for $500 from that. But something they did much more recently that's on a streaming platform under their current contract, they'll get like $27 from that or $5 from that. It's just no longer sustainable.
1: Lois, this is all pretty surprising because I think a lot of people assume that when you make it in Hollywood, you must be doing pretty well for yourself. But it sounds like under this new streaming model, that just isn't the case anymore. What is this shift from watching stuff on TV and in the cinema to streaming at home mean for writers and actors just trying to make a living?
4: It's been tremendously challenging for both of them. And there's a lot of pressure in Hollywood to look like you've made it, to be successful by appearing to be successful. And what the writers and actors' strikes have done is that they've given people an opportunity to speak out about what the reality is. So Alex O'Keefe, who was a writer on The Bear, was talking about how he was going to an awards ceremony for this hit show. And the Writers Guild Award goes to...
3: The Writers of The Bear. The Bear
4: but that he couldn't even afford to pay rent, that he was borrowing money to rent his tuxedo because he was so close to the bottom. Wow.
3: We're not being invested in whatsoever because they know that, hey, they can make us feel lucky to have the gig, right?
4: And, you know, there are a lot of rules under the current contract where actors will not be able to have health insurance for the year unless they make a certain amount of money. And what actors are telling me is, With the downward pressure on wages, with increasing effort for writers to be in these mini rooms, not to have staff jobs, but to do essentially writing gig work, it's just tremendously difficult to make the minimums you need to keep your health insurance. And you end up having to do twice as many jobs in a year in order to make the same amount of money. It's not gotten easier to audition for shows or to get a job as a writer. The competition hasn't gone down at all. These are still things that people want to do. This is still the dream. But it's gotten twice as hard just to make the same basic living. And a lot of people say that they're struggling. And I feel that people are being forced out of the profession because it's just not possible to do.
1: You mentioned a mini room. What is that? How does it differ to a traditional writer's room?
4: So a mini room is a way that productions tried to get around hiring staff writers for a long period of time to write the full TV show and instead are sort of testing out a script, trying to draft it really fast with a smaller and more nimble group of writers. But if your job lasts for just a few weeks instead of months, and then you have to find another job, that's tremendously difficult for writers.
1: If you're from a poorer background, how can you sustain these kinds of conditions?
4: That's exactly the point. And talking especially on the writer's line, on the actor's line, to black actors, to queer actors, who are talking about how they just began to see some momentum in Hollywood, that they're just starting to see larger groups of black women writers out there together working And yet at the same time, the industry is becoming less and less sustainable for people who don't have other sources of income. And talking to a lot of Black writers and Black actors, they don't see that as necessarily a coincidence. And they're willing to fight really hard for Hollywood to be a middle class job so that they can have the dream that they wanted.
1: Lois, at the heart of this is a contradiction, which is that the work of an actor or a writer is potentially being watched more often today than it's ever been. I mean, it's all available 24 hours a day on the internet. And yet the money they're making from that work being viewed is less than ever. So how do studios and how do streamers justify that?
4: Well, one really crucial part of all of this is that the streamers refuse to share any information about how many people are actually watching the shows. Hmm. And that's a huge part of the negotiation, especially for actors, because how can you negotiate for proper compensation if you don't even know how many people are watching or how successful your shows are? There was a really interesting investigation into the cast of Orange is the New Black, this foundational hit for Netflix. course. it seems very clear that this was like a massive, massive show. But a lot of the actors who worked on it, who were newcomers to the industry, a lot of actors of color, never got paid very much for that show. And even Mm -hmm. though it clearly helped make Netflix tremendously successful, none of them have gotten compensated. And none of them still know really how many people watched it. And a lot of the actors said, I was making a day rate of a couple hundred dollars a day. And I was still working my day job as a consultant or as a bartender, even as I was becoming famous and people recognized me and I was dealing with all the challenges of being a tremendously successful actor. But there was nothing in my bank account that actually compensated
1: at that level.
0: I'm happy to tell you that my latest residual check came in June and it was for $20.20.
1: What do we know about the business of these streamers? They don't tell us how many people are watching their shows, but... Are they making good money themselves?
4: We know that Netflix is tremendously successful. Its net profits in a recent quarter were $1.5 So Netflix is doing fine. Netflix has money. It's consistently profitable. A lot of the other legacy companies like Disney or Warner Brothers, they're trying to now make it and in transition into the streaming era. And they are struggling more. They have not necessarily found a way to be profitable Disney and Warner Brothers have both laid off thousands of people recently. Mm. But what is also true is that even in the Top Economic Times, the top executives at Hollywood companies are making a tremendous amount of money. The Los Angeles Times estimated that in 2021, the top executives in Hollywood made a combined $1.43 billion. Mm. And even Disney's former CEO, Bob Chapek, who got fired... He still got $25 million in salary yeah. for the year he was fired, and he got a $20 million severance package.
1: And so, given that, what's the argument that they're making to actors and writers about why they can't have just a slightly larger slice of this pie?
4: The argument is that actors and writers are unrealistic and that they're making a lot of heated claims and are not acknowledging the fact that the streaming model has been kind of rough for everyone, similar to media companies who also have more and better journalism than ever before, but people don't necessarily want to pay for it. Do we have
1: any sense of, in these negotiations, the kind of model that the actors are calling for? in the past, in the 1960s, when TV was on the rise, actors pushed for and succeeded in getting this residuals model. What do they think is a model that's fit for purpose in the 21st century?
4: So actors want to have residuals that match the new streaming era and to have the amount of money they're getting just increase slightly so it becomes more of a viable career. But in order to have that, and this is one of the real sticking points, they want transparency in how many people are watching the shows on streaming. And one of the challenges with that is that Netflix and other streamers are incredibly secretive about their actual data about who's watching, and they don't want the public to know. And it seems in part they probably don't want their Wall Street investors to know because this is a business that's trying to portray that they're going to have vast profits, that this is a new model that's going to be disruptive and hugely profitable. And it's just not clear if you actually got the the behind-the-scenes data what that might do to these companies standing in the stock market.
1: The other big issue here is also about technology, and that's the rise of artificial intelligence and the way that it threatens to upend the film and TV industries. What is that threat? What can AI do?
4: So there are a lot of fears about AI. And the writer's fears is that studios will use something like ChatGPT to generate really basic scripts. And then they can just pay one writer to sort of polish it up and that you will have something that's sort of filmable for a fraction of the labor cost that you might otherwise do. Mm. For actors, it's a bit different. They're concerned because studios are interested in digitally scanning actors, particularly background actors, and being able to use their likeness in one film project or potentially multiple film projects. Wow. And actors really are pushing back on that and want to have more rights to how their likeness is being used In film, in TV, in advertisement. And one of the tricky things here is that there's a lot of negotiation and a lot of fears about technologies that aren't quite here yet. But because AI technology seems to have improved so quickly in the past few years, actors and writers are both worried that they will literally be replaced by
1: machines. Interesting. So things are moving so quickly that this is about future-proofing the industry, not against something that studios can do now. They can't have a version of Tom Cruise that's completely AI-generated strutting around a stage. But the concern is that at some point in the near future, that could be a possibility.
4: It's absolutely a concern. And it is also the case that there certainly are companies that are asking to digitally scan background actors for like a flat fee of $400 and want the rights to that scan forever. Actors need to have really strict protections, not only for the ownership of their likeness, but also for consent. So that, for instance, a director can't, in post production, decide that they want an actress to be naked in a scene and just use the technology to make her appear naked, even if she would have never consented to appear naked on screen.
1: Wow. I mean, it's pretty incredible to consider the implications of what AI could do to Hollywood. If we cast our minds forward a decade, this whole picture, this whole industry could be completely scrambled again. You might have people able to make cinema quality films artificially in their bedrooms, just using a laptop.
4: I've definitely at AI conferences in Los Angeles heard people envision this model where you have an auteur at home in their living room with tools that allow them to take their idea to reality without the intervention of the studios, without all the notes from executives, and that this could be a really exciting and flourishing world of really interesting new content. Mm. But on the other hand, I've also heard actors argue that actually what that sounds like is just a world in which there isn't Hollywood anymore. There's just basically TikTok. And there is a huge amount of very viral, very short, very personality-driven work, but it's all pretty small and unambitious. Mm. And so there are writers and actors who fear that in chasing short-term profits and trying to squeeze labor costs when they can't squeeze anything else, Hollywood studios might be undermining themselves and leading us to an era where really big, ambitious cinema is really hard to do.
1: This isn't the first time Hollywood has had to contend with rapid technological change. There were silent movies and then talkies and then TV and then the introduction of videos and DVDs and now streaming. Is this moment different?
4: I think one of the big challenges is that even though it's really fascinating to think about everything AI could do, we also know that we're a part of a tech economy that is driven by massive hype and promises of these profound disruptions that often actually don't appear, just as we've seen Uber and Lyft promise to completely disrupt the transportation industry. And actually now, at the end of the day, an Uber or a Lyft kind of costs the same amount as a taxi. And so there are definitely a lot of tech skeptics who think that a lot of this entire debate is just different Hype men and scammers trying to scam each other reciprocally. And at the end of the day, these tools are not going to be able to deliver things that people actually want to watch. Hmm. That chat GPT is not going to write a good script. That AI scans are not going to be actors in a way that people want to watch.
1: I've heard the analogy made with chess, which can be played by computers at, like, the highest level possible. But at the end of the day, nobody turns up to watch two computers play chess. They want to see humans play against each other. That there's, like, a desire to see humans doing things that cannot be extinguished by AI.
4: I think that's absolutely true. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this double strike is that obviously actors and writers are not the first workers in the United States to be disrupted in this way by new technologies. But I think part of the reason that they're generating so many headlines and frankly have so much public support is because there is a wide understanding that creativity is fundamentally human. And what's exciting about it is that it is surprising and that people believe that other human beings have the ability to create new things, and that that's what we want. Mm -hmm. I think that cynicism over how stale and repetitive a lot of Hollywood's current films and TV is really plays into this dynamic, this question of, like, do audiences really want fresh and innovative and adventurous things, or could you just chat GPT, another sequel, to another superhero movie and if I were an AI company, the kinds of opponents I would not want to have would be tens of thousands of the most attractive people in the United States of America <laughs> who are like literally their one job is to convincingly portray their humanity. Right. <laughs> so there is something cinematic about these strikes because you do have Hollywood actors standing up and saying, we will not be replaced by machine. And when they say that, you know, they can land that line pretty well.
1: Brian, how big a threat do you see AI to the profession? I mean, as studios try to save money wherever they can, is AI something you worry about?
2: Yes, it's something I worry about because of the extent to which they can go down the road of AI. You know, this thing which I heard yesterday where a young actor was made to be scanned and then he was put in other scenes which he wasn't even involved in. Incredible. And he had no recourse for that, none at all. And that was here, that was in the UK. Now, that kind of thing is probably just an example of many, many incidents that that will happen. So the young actor or actress is put in a very precarious position If we agree to what their terms are, we will not be able to
1: bargain because we will have lost that power. I mean, you've played over the course of your career these complex characters like Hannibal Lecter.
2: Don't think you can persuade me with appeals to my intellectual vanity.
1: King Lear, like Winston Churchill.
2: The men need to feel that the nation is with them, so I shall go.
1: Complex, nuanced people. What do you say to people who think that in the future... AI could faithfully recreate your work or the work of any actor or writer? There have to be some very strict rules
2: about how we use AI. They want to do what they like, and we have to stop them. We have to protect ourselves so that we are not exploited. And also, bigger than that, is the deterioration of standard of work. We'll get to an area, I think, where we're feeding people stuff and drama at a level which is ridiculously stupid, you know, and that's how it comes. That's the danger of AI. It regresses because it doesn't tell the truth anymore. And that's what we do when we stand on the stage, we tell the truth. Shakespeare says it. we hold the mirror up to nature. And it's a very simple adage. Tell the truth. Shame the devil. That's what the work is. In many ways, that's why I'm a very strong believer that the theater and cinema has extraordinary dimensions to them because it's all about the human experience. That's the great thing about the audience. The audience don't want it either. They want to see what the truth is.
1: But in a system where just surviving as an actor becomes so difficult, does telling the truth become a privilege that only the few can afford to pursue?
2: Well, if telling the truth becomes a privilege where only a few can afford, then we're in deep shit. That's all I can say to you on that one. We are fucking in deep shit. That's a pathetic state that we could get to. And it could quite easily happen if we're not very careful. That's why we have to resist it with all our might. All we're asking for is a fairness and for the quality of work not to be disturbed.
1: Coming up... What happens when there's no more new TV and films? What are we going to watch? And some advice from Brian Cox on dealing with high-powered corporate CEOs.
3: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?
1: If this deadlock between writers and actors and the streamers and studios continues, how long could this strike go on for?
4: Everyone I've talked to thinks this is going to go on for many months, that the studios and the writers and the actors are too far apart. There was a really explosive series of anonymous interviews A few weeks ago with studio executives and people close to studio executives saying the plan was not even to come back to the tables with the writers until October and that they don't have to negotiate. They can wait until the writers, in some cases, might lose their houses or not be able to afford their rent and then start negotiating again. Everybody is feeling pretty existential about this negotiation. And so I think all of us are going to be waiting.
1: And so if they don't come back to the table, potentially for months, what does that mean for TV and movies? What does the industry do if it suddenly doesn't have a pipeline of new content to be putting out?
4: You're going to see reality TV. You're going to see documentaries. There will still be new things coming out that were close enough to the pipeline to put them through. But because things are not being filmed now, because already productions that were slated for next year are being pushed back, there will be a lot less things to watch. But, you know, the streaming era has been good to us as viewers. There's a lot of TV out there. And I think certainly the studios are banking on that.
1: Lois, what's striking about this is that in so many ways, this is a very unique industry. But then in so many other ways, it reminds me of a lot of the stories we cover here about nurses on strike and industrial action by train drivers and flight attendants and hotel workers that we're seeing across the UK and US that automation, corporate greed, you know, shrinking public sector is having a similar impact on industries as varied as cleaning a hotel and being a movie star.
4: Absolutely. You know, in LA, people are referring to this as hot strike summer or as hot labor summer. And there's this sense that there are a lot of people who are perhaps threatened by AI or other kinds of automation and that it's time for workers to really stand up And what's so interesting about Hollywood is that we have an industry that is full of celebrities and is getting a lot of coverage. And they're saying, you may think that I'm famous, but I actually have the same problems that your industry has. And none of us can really take it anymore. So it's going to be really interesting to see not only how much solidarity there is between workers, but how all of the attention to the Hollywood strike might inspire other people to also in their careers and in their industries Start drawing a different line.
1: Brian, finally, I have to ask this. You're locked in a fight here with massive profit seeking corporations. And I wonder if you might have any recent experience getting into the heads of the leaders of these kinds of organizations. You have to be a killer. That you might be able to share with union negotiators?
2: Well, they're stubborn. They're there because a lot of them are quite hard, and it's all about money. These guys who run these companies have a singularity of purpose. They want to go in a certain direction, and they won't deviate from that. And they have to be resisted. You have to realize there's a sort of organic mechanism that you can't bugger around with. But because we're still into the business of exploiting stuff and exploiting those situations to make money, We've allowed ourselves to drift down this path, and it's very difficult to reverse
1: it. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Take care. Bye.
0: That was Michael Safi speaking with actor Brian Cox. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and Eli Block. Sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer is Huma Halili. Additional production by Daniel Simo. I'm Gabrielle Jackson. We'll be back with a new episode of Full Story tomorrow. See you then.
3: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?